right? You can see the sermon text as well as an outline for you in your bulletin on pages 6 and 7. You can see there, again, it's another long kind of narrative portion from the Old Testament, and so we'll kind of follow our unspoken customary practice of letting you be seated before we have the reading when it's a long one like this. So go ahead and be seated. You can see there in your bulletin, too, I'm not typically a guy who's big on alliteration. There's a very alliterated outline there for you, which is not like me. To make it even worse, I almost titled it Messy Mercy. But that just kind of gave me a stomachache to think about it, and so I didn't do it. I chose chose to spare you all of that. But we're taking a short one-week break from Esther. And I thought it'd be helpful for us to see Jesus through the life of another woman in the Old Testament. So we're going to be in Ruth, just Ruth chapter 1, just the first chapter this morning. And both Ruth and Esther emphasize God's sovereignty, God's promise keeping. But in our focus this morning, we're going to look at how commitment, how promise keeping is messy. It's messy for God And it's messy for us. This is the good news of Jesus, and it's brought to us through the surprising person of a young Gentile widow. And it's a grace that is unexpected and unconditional and unsanitized. We find it in the whole of Ruth chapter 1 this morning. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. 
For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity against me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Lord, this morning, our hearts, Father, as you know, are in desperate need of your word. And our hearts are distracted. Our hearts are distracted maybe even by our own bitterness, our own hardship and difficulty. Our hearts could be distracted in lots of different ways. And even if they weren't distracted, even if we had the fullness of attention, we would not understand your holy word nor see your gospel or your son in it apart from your spirit. And so we pray that by your spirit you would show us Jesus. That you would confront us with Jesus this morning. That we would worship him, believe him, grow in him, embrace him more fully. And do this for us in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, it's the basic plot line to the first and the last Oceans movies. You've probably seen them, Oceans 11 and 13. They're about a group of highly skilled criminal specialists led by George Clooney, who plays Danny Ocean, and his friend, uh, who's played by Brad Pitt. And they go after casino owners that were already set to dislike for good reasons on the front end. And they go after them and stage an elaborate con. And a con is short for confidence because the whole point of a con is to get your target, to get your victim to place confidence in you so that you can get closer to them and to their valuables so that you can get what you want. And to do this, Clooney and Pitt and the guys, they create a crisis for these casino-owning fat cats. They, they create a fake crisis that has to be solved by these casino owners to protect their money. 
And so Andy Garcia, who's the target in the first movie, and Al Pacino, who's the target in the third movie, they hire Ocean's gang to fix this crisis that they think is there. Only to find out by the end of each movie that they have been played. One crisis actually led to the real worst crisis of all, them being robbed by a bunch of con men. And when we get to the end of Ruth chapter 1, this is how Naomi feels about God. She and her family had left a terrible crisis in Israel only to find a worse one waiting for them in Moab. And by the end of the chapter, she's standing with Ruth by her side. She's back in her hometown feeling conned by God. In the first five verses, it tell us how it all started. The story of this book takes place during the time when the judges ruled. As Tyler mentioned earlier, this famous line from the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel and every person did what was right in their own eyes. And this means that it's a time of violence, a time of apostasy, which means that people are regularly turning their backs on God to worship idols. And it's the time of the Lord's discipline and hardship falling on his people to turn their hearts back to him. That might even be the reason why there's famine going on in these first five verses. It might be discipline from the Lord. Famine is one of the types of discipline the Lord said he'd bring on his people in Deuteronomy 28. And so Elimelech, Naomi's husband, decides to strike out to the east across the Jordan River to Moab where at least some kind of safety and maybe a little prosperity waits for them. But it gets worse. These opening five verses, I mean, they just kind of give us a series of bad circumstances that are just spiraling downwards. Time of the judges, famine, a need to leave and experience exile from their home, to be reduced to being sojourners, which means resident aliens, in a land that had actually proven to be inhospitable and violent in the past. You might remember King Eglon, a very fat king from Moab, oppressed Israel during the time of the judges before Ehud, the judge, killed him. So relations between Moab and Israel are not great during this period of time, nor are they normally in the Old Testament. And then Elimelech and Naomi's sons... Their two sons, they marry non-Israelites. They marry Gentile women. And the text doesn't go into whether or not this is sin or not or how we're supposed to think about this, but at the very least, it would have been looked negatively, it would have been looked upon negatively by Old Testament Israelites. It's the kind of news that would have older women at their tea parties going, it's too bad, too bad. But it even gets worse from here. All of the husbands of these now three women, they die. And in that time and in that place, such a circumstance was awful. It was a slow death sentence for an older widow. No one to take care of her now. No one to take care of her future. Begging. Possible abuse or enslavement. Maybe starvation. And so Naomi has experienced at this point nothing 
but disturbance, nothing but interruption, and even brokenness in her most important relationships, her covenant relationships. Her relationship with her people, her nation was so disturbed, she had to leave it. Her relationships to her husband and children have been brought to an end by death. And now she's deeply wondering about all of God's promises being broken too. Her covenant relationship with God to Naomi feels very, very much on the line. But there's something else in these five verses. And there's something else that reaches out from the text that kind of tries to grab the reader by, by the collar and pull us into the text. Naomi's husband is Elimelech. And Elimelech means, my God is king. And my God is king just died. My God is king just died. Why would an Israelite leader care about this? Why would they care? Well, because the book of Ruth was written probably well after the time that David had become king. Okay, so it's written after David is king. And we know that this book is about the story of how David's line came to be, who David was related to, some of his relatives. And because this book of Ruth was written after David had become king, it means that the original readers, they knew how the story turned out, but they would continue to go back to read the story as a way to remind themselves how David's family line almost died out in the Moabite desert. And so, just like listening to Esther for Old Testament Israelites was kind of like crawling up in your granddad's lap to hear the story of how your whole nation was almost wiped out and how God intervened and saved it in the end, listening to Ruth was like listening to your granddad tell the story of how your family and how the promised anointed king was almost wiped out before his reign ever started. In other words, Ruth is about God's promises being on the line, in question. God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 that God would bless the whole world through Abraham, they're on the line in the book of Ruth. God's promises to Judah, the son of Jacob, and God's later promises to David that a ruler, a king, a savior, a messiah would always reign from his family are on the line in Ruth. And the story starts with a shocking headline. My God is king, is dead. And his family is only one crisis away from being the same. God's promises, God's commitments... Will he keep them? Will he keep them? And if so, how? And the answers that this story gives to these questions is yes, he will keep them. And how? Well, it's always messy. It's always messy. But his promise keeping, it's always unexpected and it's always unconditional, even when it's so unsanitized, even when it's so messy. Verse 6, it it gives us the first glimmer of hope in the book. Even though Naomi couldn't hear it, she couldn't hear it yet. But verse 6 is is God leaning down and whispering to Naomi, I haven't forgotten you. 
I haven't forgotten you. Because he sends rain. He sends rain. Cool, refreshing, life-giving rain that was unexpected as all rain was back then. God visits his people and the word for visit means to come to the aid of. God was coming to the aid of his people in general. He's coming to the aid of Naomi specifically. Bethlehem, which means house of bread, had no bread at the beginning. And in verse 6, it gets restocked. But what happens next is even more unexpected. As she turns to head back to Judah, who her two daughters-in-law assure her that they want to go with her. What? They want to go with her. And Naomi responds with very understandable grief, and she, under, and she responds with, with very sound reason, really. She's too old to be remarried, she says, to have any more children for these women to marry. And on top of it all, in verse 13, Naomi, she's convinced that she's cursed. She's convinced that God's curse will also fall on them if they stay with her. This is what she's saying. And the women weep together at the beginning of her message to them in verse 9, and they weep when she's finished in verse 14. This whole section is heartbreaking. Once again... (laughs) And you just, you have to love this about the Bible. The Bible is just so honest enough to give us a picture of broken hearts. It doesn't sugarcoat it for us at all. It gives us an honest picture of broken hearts because we're people of broken hearts for all kinds of reasons. And what Orpah does, what Orpah does in response is entirely Expected. It's entirely expected. It's entirely understandable. It's entirely acceptable by that society's standards. And which is why she's not criticized by the author here. She kisses her mother-in-law and leaves and heads back to her family, her religion, her hopes for another marriage. And you know what? You and I... We don't get to judge Orpah. We don't get to. Sorry, we just don't. The author of the text doesn't. There's, there's no poetic refrain that's interjected here where the narrator steps in to tell us what we're supposed to think. There's no song. There's no lines of poetry saying, Orpah was a fool. She broke God's rules. She was uncool. Do better in school. And that silence from the author, it does a whole lot. It it says a whole lot that even in that tribal society where American individualism and consumerism is still 3,000 years away, even in that tribal society, what Orpah does makes total sense. But the other reason that we can't look down on her is because we are her. We are her. She pictures for us the normal approach we all have in seeking security and self-fulfillment. It's the default mode of our hearts. And I just want you to think about this as a parent. If you had two daughters, Ruth and Orpah, 
Orpah makes this decision, and as a parent, you're thinking, yes, sweetie, that's what you need to do here. That's what you need to do. Your husband's died. You don't have any obligation anymore. You need to be taken care of. You're making the wise decision here. Right? And and if, if your daughter started to make the decision that Ruth makes here, you'd go, what are you doing? What are you doing? There is nothing but hardship for you that direction. You have absolutely no reason to hope that anything good is coming your way by going this direction. You understand that, right? We are Orpah. What will this relationship do for me? What can I expect from the future in this relationship, from this commitment? What are my chances for fulfillment for security, for achieving my goals out of this commitment? These are the questions. They're almost always the unconscious and even the conscious questions at the forefront of our minds when considering a commitment to a person or to a task. Dating dating couples think about these things all the time when considering marriage. Kids at school think about these things when deciding on who's going to be their friends and who they're going to hang out with. And so Orpa is doing not just what we would do, but what we would counsel others to do in a similar situation. Orpa is doing the rational thing. She's doing the smart thing. She's doing the calculated and in many ways the wise thing. And so this passage isn't saying, so good Christians are like Ruth and bad ones are like Orpa. Thank you for listening to the reading of the Lord's word. That's not what's happening here. This passage is written for an Orpah-ish people who will always make Orpah-like decisions in all their circumstances unless their hearts unless their hearts are first transformed by a different kind of love. And that's what makes Ruth's response so incredibly unexpected. Her commitment to stay with Naomi, it's not just an unexpected decision. It's coming from such an unexpected person, a Moabite woman from a different land and a different religion, a widow, now free of all her family commitments because her husband is dead, poor, vulnerable, giving not of her strength, she's giving out of her poverty. And it's a completely free decision. She has no obligations here. And what God gives to Naomi through Ruth is not just unexpected. It's a reminder of his unconditional love and commitment to her. That's her God. That's her heavenly father. God is speaking again to Ruth. He's speaking again to Naomi through Ruth. And you look at the full scale, the the, the wide breadth of Ruth's commitment to her. In verses 16 and 17, I mean, it's total. It covers place and geography. Where you go, I will go. It covers the full breadth of Naomi's life, the chronology of her life. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. It covers genealogy. She's she's taking on a whole new national identity. Your people shall be my people. And most important of all, 
And the reason that even makes all of this possible, Ruth's commitment is theological. Your God shall be my God. There it is. There's the key phrase. The difference between Orpah's decision and Ruth's, it's not a matter of emotional, womanly sentiment versus cold-hearted reasoning. Ruth is not held out to us as a great example of a movie made for the Lifetime channel. This entire scene, it's very emotional. But what's important for us to see is that the only reason that Ruth's decision can even be considered praiseworthy instead of foolish is that the true God, the gracious God, has worked in her heart, has drawn her to himself, and is now showing up through her, is now showing up in her for the sake of Naomi. Ruth's words of unconditional commitment sound just like God's covenant promises repeated to his people again and again and again. To Abraham in Genesis 17, through Moses in Exodus 6, to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 29, and again and again we see it in the Old Testament, I will be your God and you shall be my people. You see, just like he did with the rain in verse 6, God is whispering to Naomi, although louder this time, through Ruth. Ruth has got God's covenant promises in her mouth when she's promising to go back with Naomi. Yes, Naomi, God says, I have let all hell break loose in your life. But not for one minute, not one second, have I forgotten where you live or forgotten that you're my daughter and that I'm your God. And now here is the young, bright face of a precious woman who's going to remind you of this every morning you wake up. And you know what? Naomi doesn't get it. She doesn't hear it. Not yet. She hasn't heard God's whisper in verse 6 when the rain came. She doesn't hear God's whisper yet. In Ruth's mouth, as covenant promises are made again to her. Because this passage, it, it ends on a negative note. The worst lines of the whole chapter are saved for the end. The whole town is stirred up when they arrive because they remember that Naomi had left with her husband and two sons, and now she's come back without them and some strange foreigner with her. And she tells them, Look, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. There's nothing pleasant about me or or my life. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Bitter. Yahweh himself has brought nothing but bitterness to me. And if Yahweh has made me bitter, if Yahweh has caused me my bitterness, then who are you to call me pleasant? That's what she's saying. Are you God? No. He's made me bitter. Don't call me pleasant. It's an insult. Naomi, she's at a point of utter despair. She has no hope. And it's, 
It's just another place that we find, and even just this passage alone, we could go through more of the book, but even in this passage alone with the Bible, it's just so jarringly honest. It's so unsanitized about the way things are, about the way we are. God's unexpected and unconditional commitment and presence with her are not felt or seen by her at this time. She doesn't notice them. She does not see them. She does not take comfort from them. And once again, like Orpah, we're not left with a negative judgment against her because their narrator knows and God knows that God's ways of fulfilling his commitments to us, they're messy. They're unsanitized. We're the ones who like to present the big commitments of life, the big decisions of life in a sanitized fashion. And we usually do it in one of two ways. We, we either lessen or we subtract from what commitment really means. Or we try to romanticize, we try to idealize the object of our commitment to convince ourselves of a rosy picture. And the Bible doesn't do either one. Marriage gives us a good example of this. Although marriage isn't the only one, it's just one example. But any couple that's been dating for a while can tell us this. On on the one hand, there's the prevailing message of the culture that tells the dating couple, hey, marriage, it's really just a piece of paper. It's just a ceremony. And you don't need those things to tell somebody that you love them, not if it's real love. I mean, you love them now, but what if they turn out not to be a good fit? And you need some kind of back door to the commitment. It's only smart. What if the relationship doesn't give you what you want from it? And so, so you kind of, sort of commit, but not really, not fully. In our circles, more conservative-minded Christian circles, we look down on lessening commitment, which is good. We look down on sanitizing commitment, redefining it so that it's not commitment anymore. But what we do is often sanitize the object of our commitment. We romanticize marriage, for instance, to keep going with that example. And it's why the romantic fiction section of the Christian bookstore is so big. We've taught Christian couples who are dating to be obsessed with the idea of compatibility. If you just find the right person, if you just find the right kind of person, then you can expect a happy marriage. The key's all in the front end. You find the right person, it's going to be good. It's not going to be that difficult. Total commitment's going to be pretty much a joy if you find that right Mr. Darcy to go with the right Elizabeth Bennet. But see, Pride and Prejudice, it would have been a lot better story if we could have seen Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy continue to be very prideful and very prejudicial towards each other well after the wedding. Because commitment's messy. It's unsanitary. It doesn't matter who you marry. Yesterday I went to a funeral. I went to a funeral for a one-year-old girl from a family in our neighborhood. 
And another family from our church was there. And they took their four-year-old daughter with them to a funeral for a one-year-old. That was good. That was good. They didn't sanitize life for her. They didn't sanitize death for her. They let her go with them to the funeral. And they said, this is our world, sweetie. Sometimes this happens. Sometimes people younger than you don't make it. Because we don't live in a sanitized world. We live in a broken world. And parents do a good job when they think about ways to unsanitize the world for their kids rather than protect them from everything. You can't do it. You can't do it. And so you've just got to show them the mess in the proper ways, in the proper time. Don't wait long. Don't wait too long. You've got to show them the mess in the proper ways, in the proper time, and then you have to show them Jesus there in the mess. It's Ruth chapter 1. Because covenant love, is, it's, it's unexpected, it's unconditional, and it's messy. I read two church fathers, Ambrose of Milan and Isidore of Sevilla, both of, whom who, both of whom like to talk about how Ruth pictures for us the church. And you know what? Sometimes she does. Sometimes she does. But the only way Ruth can picture for us the church... And let's be more personal than that. The only way that we can look like Ruth is if we know Ruth's Savior. Before Ruth pictures the church, she has to be embraced as a picture of Jesus in this passage. We can't make unexpected decisions of love and commitment to one another, to our neighbors, to our family, to our city, until we're surprised by Jesus' love for us. We can't live lives of unconditional love towards others, expecting and asking nothing in return until our deepest needs have been taken care of, until the thirsts of our hearts have been quenched by the one who says, I've come to go where you go, to enter into your messy, unsanitized world of broken promises, to be human like you, to walk your streets with you, and yes, to die where you die, but to take on death at a whole different level. To experience the worst kind of separation from God and a bloody satanic mess and then to be the complete reversal of Elimelech. To be the king, the God who died and then rose again in your place. Jesus is the my God is king who died the Elimelech who died and the Elimelech who rose again. And he commits to you and in in me, in our Orpah-ish-like hearts, he commits to us when we're blind by our grief and sadness and we can't hear his whisper and we can't see his work in our lives like Naomi because he enters into the mess.
And this Jesus has to be taken deep into our souls and into our hearts by faith. His unexpected forgiveness in the place of our routine sin. His unconditional promise to never leave you or forsake you in the place of our transactional broken commitments. His messy, unsanitized love that continues to work in us even when we feel like Naomi. When we can't see it. When we can't feel it. But He's here with you like Ruth was for her mother-in-law. And His commitment to you has been written in His blood. And has been sealed by His Spirit. So believe. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we are people of broken hearts, sadness, loss. We're people of reason and rationality and calculation. We are not people who are going to be quick to enter into a relationship a task, a commitment that costs us everything and offers us nothing. These are the types of people we are. And we know, Father, that these are the types of people that you sent your Son to die, to save, to change, to transform. And we know, Father, that there in the little town of Bethlehem, you committed yourself to the family line of David once again through Ruth so that many, many, many years later in Bethlehem your son could be born in the same town where you could commit to us, your church, through him. And so, Father, we pray and ask that this week, this week, you would help us to see him. Help us to hear your covenant promises spoken to us through him. Break through our pain, break through our loss, and let us see that you are with us, that you are near to us, that you are working in the situation even though we can't see it, that it's messy and difficult and you're merciful and you're mindful that we are but dust, that you have loved dust so well through Jesus. Do these things for us. In Jesus' name and by the Spirit. Amen.